This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, folks. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest is Dr. Jan Bardsley, author of Maiko Masquerade, Crafting Geisha Girlhood in Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Maiko Masquerade explores Japanese representations of the Maiko or Princess Geisha in films, manga, and other popular media as an icon of exemplary girlhood. Jan Bardsley traces how the Maiko, long stigmatized as a victim of sexual exploitation, emerges in the 2000s as the chaste keeper of Kyoto's classical artistic traditions. Insider accounts by Maiko and Geisha, their leaders and fans, show pride in the training, challenges, and rewards Maiko face. No longer viewed as a toy for men's amusement, she serves as catalyst for women's consumer fun. This change inspires stories of an ordinary girls and even one boy striving to embody the Maiko ideal, engaging in masquerades that highlight questions of personal choice, gender performance, and national identity. Our guest, Dr. Jan Barnsley, is Professor Emerita of Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So welcome, Dr. Barnsley, to the New Books Network. Thanks, Emily. It's great to be here. Yeah. So before we dive into our talk about your project here, uh, can you tell our listeners more about you? Oh, oh thank you. Um, sure. So um, my academic interest in Japan really started when I was in college and I was able to spend my junior year abroad in Tokyo. And that's when I first started learning about Japanese language and culture. And I was a theater major. And just by luck, I was able to take um, lessons from an actor in the No Theater, these weekly lessons. And that experience really interested me in Japan and spurred me on to do more. And then in the 1980s, I went to UCLA and uh, worked on a PhD in modern Japanese literature. And at that time, if you told me I'd be writing about geisha, I would have been very surprised because I was so interested in Japanese feminism. And I worked, uh, my dissertation topic was on um, 
a group of what they were called new women in the 1910s. And they had this quite notorious magazine called the Blue Stockings or Sato. And uh, they were getting in all kinds of trouble by pushing the gender envelope. And so that was my first book. And then after called the Blue Stockings of Japan. Uh, then after that, I continued my interest in women's writing, but as well as writing about women writers and intellectuals, I became very interested in other kinds of icons of Japanese womanhood, like princesses and beauty queens and uh, those sort of more feminine side of Japan. So one of my interests really became this intersection of feminism and femininity in Japan and how they could overlap. So then Geisha really fits uh, with that. Very cool. Yeah, thank you for kind of sharing uh, your background. And I can definitely see how your journey informed this project, you know. So I'm interested to, I'm excited that our listeners will get to hear more about, you know, how you got here and stuff. So thank you for that. Um, And speaking of which, uh, kind of, again, backtracking on this, how did you come to, you know, work on this specific project here? How did you start working on, you know, Michael Masquerade? Yeah, that's a good question. And it goes back about 20 years here. Um, And I think uh, talking about how I got involved in writing Michael Masquerade shows us how sometimes research topics kind of pick us. You know, you're presented with this confluence of topics and texts and questions that seem to be in the air. And so kind of following up on those questions leads you down a research path. And for me, about in around 1997, Arthur Golden published a book called Memoirs of a Geisha, which became quite a worldwide hit, actually. And everybody that I ran into, especially since I was in Japan and in Japanese studies, uh, was always asking me about the book. Um, I got invitations to talk to book clubs and local community groups who really wanted to know, well, what's the story with Geisha. So what I tried to do at that point um, was kind of broaden the picture that Golden presented of these geisha in the 20s and 30s to show people what else was happening with Japanese women in the 20s and 30s. For example, um, feminist movements for suffrage or modern girls and other kinds of arts. Uh, But I did have to admit geisha were pretty interesting. So In around 2000, early 2000s, I started an undergraduate class at UNC called Geisha in um, uh, History, Fiction, and Fantasy. And in this class, we could really spend the whole semester going into the topic of Geisha in depth. So we could look at Geisha representations in Japan, uh, in art, in theater, in literature, and we could look at their changing social status over over decades, over actually um, the first geisha we can peg to about 1800. So from 1800 to Arthur Golden in 1997, you get quite a range of, of actual geisha and geisha going from cultural heroes to being very demonized um, or stigmatized women in Japan. And at the same time, we looked at what I call geisha girl stories, which I think memoirs of the geisha would fit into, but there's there's over a hundred years of um, novels written in the West about geisha, plays about geisha, and certainly the opera Madame Butterfly and lots of art about geisha. And these 
usually these geisha girl stories have a lot more to say about what's going on in England or France or the U.S. or Australia than they actually do about, about Japan. But in the class, we wanted to say, well, if, if these icons, if these geisha sh- and American interests, for example, in them show so much about American sexual and gender politics, can we say the same thing about Japan? What do, what do geisha in the 1920s what, um, say about what was happening in Japan at the time? And so we had this, this really fun class. But at the end of class, the students would always say, so what's happening in Japan now? I mean, in the 2000s, what do Japanese think about geisha? And there really wasn't much uh, written about it. So on various trips that I made to Japan when I was in Kyoto, which is famous for its geisha culture, I would try to find out more to answer this question. And right away, I noticed that it wasn't the geisha who was the cultural hero. It was really her teenage apprentice, the maiko or the dancing girl. So once I, I keyed into this, which happens pretty quickly, I think, for anybody going to Kyoto, then I could collect materials. And there were movies and fiction and manga and TV shows all about Maiko. So, so reading her represent, and I was really re- interested in her representation in these texts. Um, how were Japanese, how were people all over Japan who were never going to meet a Maiko or go to a tea house party in Kyoto? What impression did they have of who Maiko were and what they meant in Japan uh, from from exposure to these texts. Of course, since I was going through them as a scholar, I was going through all of them and analyzing them. Uh, But I think overall, there's a very strong uniform impression that comes across. And then in um, 2018-19, that academic year, I was really lucky that I got to be a visiting scholar in Tokyo at um, Ochanomizu Women's University. And that gave me the time to pull this together. And I also had the opportunity to talk with um, colleagues and students at the university about what they felt. And I had more chances to actually go to Kyoto and uh, attend events, talk with people involved with this world. Um, And I think the hardest thing was trying to bring it all together in, in one book. Yeah, you cover so much territory in this project. I was so impressed, you know, and I love how you were talking about that, you know, these questions, you know, it kind of found you and I always love hearing, you know, how students can shape our thinking sometimes in that way. And I love that hearing more about that process. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, if I could just say, I mean, the discussions in class where students, you know, the bright students reading very closely would come up with new ideas that nobody in the literature mentioned because they were fresh and they were, you know, thinking critically and and it also made me continually excited about the project because you're getting all these creative responses. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's I'm sure that they're excited to uh, read this, you know, your former students and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. And so, you know, going back to sort of, I guess, if you will, a teaching side of things, right, we have to kind of explain some stuff to our listeners here, you know, as well. Um, So can you kind of tell us a little bit about the central figure here, um, the Maiko, right? And can you tell our listeners, you know, what else is kind of important to understand for them to, 
you know, before they dive into the book. Right, right. The Maiko is really central. And then once you understand the Maiko, then the masquerades become <laughs> possible to enjoy. But I think uh, there's two things that listeners need to know about the Maiko. And the first is simply who they are and what they do. But secondly, and more importantly, it's what Maiko represent to Japanese today. So I'll try to uh, go into both of these. And first, I'll start with who Maiko are, where they live, and what they do. So Maiko are teenage girls. They can start um, this apprenticeship when they're about 15, um, after they have graduated from middle school. In Japan, high school is not compulsory, so you can start uh, this apprenticeship rather than going to high school. Um, you could also complete high school and start it, but the limit uh, is age 20. And they're really associated with a kind of teenage uh, years or, or uh, girlhood. Uh, as apprentices, they live in a kind of geisha family. There may be, it's, there's all women in this family. There may be some other maiko, a young geisha, and a woman who manages, who owns this, okia, and she's always addressed as mother. So this is kind of a, a family. Um, Maiko spend all their weekdays, all their mornings uh, studying arts. So particularly dance, but also music and some of the other Japanese arts, flower arranging, shamisen instrument. Um, and they're always supposed to learn a kind of Japanese etiquette. Uh, you can see Maiko many times in Kyoto. They perform at booster events, at major holidays. Uh, they also perform alongside geisha at tea house parties in the evening, and these are very exclusive and expensive. Um, and as of 2020, before the pandemic really um, got going, before the lockdown, there were about 80 active Maiko in Kyoto. So that's about around 75 or 80 today. Um, in the 1960s, there were 150 in one district alone. So we see this as kind of a shrinking um, group of, of people. Now, one thing also interesting to know about the Maiko is in the past, many were daughters of geisha or Kyoto merchants. They'd grown up in Kyoto. But since the early 2000s, about 90% of Maiko have come from other parts of Japan. Um, and even though they go through this apprenticeship, and some may go through the entire five to six years, many will not become geisha or geiko as they're known in Kyoto, but they will use what they've learned in their apprenticeship to go into other professions, some might go into other types of entertainment or arts or go back to school or just do a completely different um, line of work. So um, and then the last thing I think we have to know about Maiko uh, from where she lives and what she does is how she looks, because this is the thing that most people are very charmed by and very curious about, because her look, the, the Maiko of today, looks almost exactly like the Maiko did 100 years ago. She has quite a voluminous kimono in her formal costume. She has an obi, a sash that goes around her middle that, that holds the kimono and it kind of dangles in the back. It's a very beautiful, elaborate uh, kind of silk obi. And, uh, and then she also wears very high wooden sandals. And when she's a young Michael, they put little bells in these sandals. So when she walks along, you hear this little clink, clink. And 
it's, it's really this sense of youth. Then she has a very elaborate hairstyle. It's a very old-fashioned Japanese hairstyle. It, it gets done once a week, so she has to be very careful learning how to sleep in such a way as to protect it. Then this elaborate hairstyle is um, adorned with various ornaments that also, that could be flowers, that could glitter. So if, if you take those little bells and the glitter and this, this gorgeous robe, it, you know, she really stands out when you see her in Kyoto. And um, she also, in her formal look, has a very theatrical makeup, a, a white face and uh, red lips and, and dark um, liner around the eyes. Uh, and this, this whole costume is so transformative that girls, when they're first wearing the, the Michael whole costume or uniform, don't even recognize themselves. I mean, it's that, uh, it can change your look that much. And, and that can also lead to the masquerade. And then now to go to the second part of the question, what does a Michael mean to Japanese? I think that's really essential. And that's what I try to get at in the book. Around 2008, there was a huge amount of tourism to Japan, a lot of domestic tourism. And within this, then there was a lot of attention to Maiko. And for the first time in decades, Kyoto actually had a hundred Maiko. And, and a lot of the books and manga and so forth that I found were either published around 2008, or if it's a long running manga, got their start about this time. So the, the Maiko is actually Kyoto's quintessential girl. And she has kind of two opposite things she's supposed to do. On the one hand, she's supposed to be this very poised artist, very schooled in etiquette, knows just how, you know, can wear this elaborate uh, costume very properly. At the same time, she's supposed to give the air of the girl, you know, free, innocent, not having too many responsibilities, very respectful of her elders, but a kind of figure of fun. So it's a little bit of a contradiction. She's also... Kyoto's character brand or mascot. So everywhere you go in Kyoto, as soon as you get to the train station, you'll see Maiko. They're on menus, they're on maps, there's Maiko dolls. And if you get a cappuccino, there's a Maiko on the foam atop the, the cappuccino. So she's really everywhere. And then you, you see posters too of actual Maiko being photographed. And these are announcements of their upcoming public performances in the spring and fall that anybody can go to. Um, you just buy a ticket for about $35. Um, but, but one of the other points about seeing this cute Maiko everywhere in Kyoto that I try to emphasize in the book is this is really targeting women in many ways. That it's, and you see posters that make, such as the cover I use on the book that shows all of these young women going to Kyoto to shop and they all look a little bit like Maiko, even though you know it's just a, a costume. But the idea is here, I believe, is that um, now the Maiko is a tool for girls' fun. So tourists, women tourists can claim Kyoto as their own space, of a kind of female-friendly space for their own leisure and fun. So it suggests you get together with your girlfriends, you go to Kyoto, you eat together, you shop, maybe you go to some kind of event. Um, and in these posters, notably, there are no men around, there's no children around. It's like appropriating this girl figure 
for adult women to use to imagine their own just kind of girlish fun, however, however they see that. So that's a long way of saying who Michael are and what they represent. Yeah, and I think uh, that's really fascinating how you kind of spelled out that, not a transformation, but like maybe development, you know, of this figure that we're, you know, talking about here. Um, and continuing for a minute here, we're just sort of establishing some terminology, right? right. Um, shifting gears to chapter one, right? You discuss a lot of literature about the Hanamachi. So can you explain to us what that word means? And, you know, in this chapter, what do we learn from the books that you discuss here? Right. So the Hanamachi are literally flower districts. That's what their name means. And these are essentially the neighborhoods where Geisha and Michael work and where Michael live. This is where tea houses are and where Okia are. And Kyoto has five Hanamachi. Each one is very pretty and has a slightly different flavor. And anybody could go to them. In fact, today now, they're really broadly tourist destinations. There's cafes and shops and other restaurants there. Um, and Gion, the biggest in, and most famous, often can get overrun with tourists, or at least it did before the pandemic. But, but what's different now about these Hanamachi is that in the past, they were not tourist districts. They were seen as places where men who were um, affiliated with tea houses, often men in the literati, but it could have been men in business, men in the military, let's say in the 1930s, would, would go to these tea houses, and that's where they would have their evenings of um, conversation and pleasure and doing business and things like that. And so it was really a, a world, in a sense, that divided women who worked in those worlds from women, from their wives, who would never go into those worlds, let's say before the war. After, but now things are different. It's become very female friendly. And this is also because it's the 21st century and Japan really needs to promote the Maiko and this, as, a, as a artist, um, as a female friendly space, as a place of culture. So all of these things are now emphasized about the Hanamachi. So it's, it's kind of a bridge to the past in the way as you're walking in these neighborhoods um, you'll really see right away a different kind of architecture um, and the tea houses. And, and it's just a very pretty, and you might see a Maiko and a Geisha walking there. But now there's much more of a sense of trying to attract tourists to go into the other kinds of shops and so forth there and making this one of the major sites of Kyoto culture. Uh, Kyoto is kind of a world heritage site. Um, but now to go slightly differently into the literature on Hanamachi, uh, by that, um, I'm not talking about an academic literature, but a very, because there isn't one on this I, that I could find. This is a very popular literature. It's paperback guides that are in Japanese for Japanese, published in the 2000s, that are trying to persuade Japanese to come visit the Hanamachi, but more importantly, to respect the Hanamachi as a site of traditional Japanese culture. And what I found particularly interesting is that several of these are written by women. One's a photographer and freelance writer and the other's a college professor of business. And they're longtime uh, friends of Geisha. They got, they got into this through curiosity. Um, they didn't intend to become experts on the Hanamachi, but they did. So 
at any rate, they are really trying to persuade Japanese women to think of this, again, as kind of their space, a space they can claim as people who could go to tea houses too, as people who could learn from geisha social skills, as people who could appreciate geisha art. So there's, there's really a different focus in the literature today. Uh, and one of the things they like to emphasize, and this is true, is that these hanamachi are really a kind of women's world. So the leaders of the hanamachi are women, often older women, many of whom were geisha at one point and are responsible for training the next generation of geisha. You don't have men in charge of tea houses or okia. Um, so it's really a, a very much a women's world in that way. And lastly, I think we could say about these popular guides is they try to um, express how this tea house system, all these tea houses managed by women, give people a sense of belonging that they can feel once they're you know, kind of almost like members of a tea house. Once they've established a client relationship, then they become very loyal. They have to become very loyal to this tea house, but they should have a long term, a long term relationship and they should really have the sense that they belong here and the tea house must nurture that. Um, so it makes it a little difficult, I think, for the tea house managers, because on the one hand, they probably always need new clientele. But on the other hand, they remain very exclusive. And, you you know, you have to have an introduction to go to one. And and they want to nurture these long term relationships. So so they don't want to have people think for the most part of going to a tea house for just one party. Got it. Thank you for explaining that to us and breaking that down a bit um and kind of again continuing with our discussion here of literature about the hanamachi right um you shift gears in chapter two um to you know more of that so can you talk about in chapter two what we learn about the maiko geiko career path right yeah that i think that's really important to bring up because it's it's so common almost all the books on the hanamachi talk about this and they really emphasize that it's a very rigorous apprenticeship and that these women, both Maiko and Geiko, um, have to internalize all of these traditional arts and all of this um, kind of uh, practices of etiquette. Um, but I think they're, they're aiming to do two things, essentially, these books that are talking about the, the career path. One is to banish the stigma um, that many Japanese may still hold, and the books even talk about this, um, that still see the hanamachi as a site um, just catering to men's sexual pleasure. So they want to banish that. And at the same time, in a way they do this by communicating the strict etiquette that Michael must master. So in other words, these guys, guys describe the career path as a real steady progression in arts, etiquette, mastering social skills, and, um, and things like that. So they're really trying to um, frame the Maiko as an elite artist, much like a young ballerina, let's say. Um, and, and yet there's some real interesting ideas about Japanese-ness that, uh, that emerge in this literature. Um, one thing we see is that they kind of reflect a conservative belief in a kind of almost native Japanese-ness tied to Japanese ethnicity. Um, they might, they, they give the impression 
that traditional Japanese etiquette is something that young people today don't understand. And yet, if they go through this MICO training, they will have it down. And in doing that, not only do they become very poised and skilled, but they become more Japanese. So there's a sense that Jap- that these hanamachi and MICO training even becomes a kind of site of Japanese-ness that is always in danger of being lost, but can be recovered through this training. And I think the, um, the really narrow side is it can get into a, almost an ethno-nationalism, even though this is, I think, just runs through the literature, even though it's never stated, you know, frankly. Um, or, but I think there's an implication that only ethnically Japanese girls can be maiko. And yet in Japan today, as we saw, like in the Olympics, they're trying to, some leaders are trying to push the idea that there's more people who are Japanese who are not ethnically Japanese. Like, like take Naomi Osaka. Could Naomi Osaka become a Maiko? You know, and that's something that the Hanamachi, I think, going forward really has to open to. Um, but uh, let me tell you a few things about the career path just very briefly, um, because it's, it's made very clear that girls come in when they're about 15, they have to have an okia accept them, and then they spend about six months as a trainee um, when they're just learning uh, dance and they're also learning the ways of this world. Then at some point when they're ready, they debut as a maiko, and that's when they enjoy the the whole elaborate look, and then they can start going to evening tea house parties, and they can do this apprenticeship over the next five years. They won't make any money doing this. They won't spend any money doing this. The okia will provide everything, all the lessons, all the, the room and board, so to speak, and, and of course, all the, um, the ornaments and her kimono and so forth. But the Maiko, once she does debut, the Okia earns money from her work. She will get spending money and she can keep tips. Um, but the, the idea in, in the literature, they will always talk about how much these Okia invest in the girls, how, in a sense, what an act of preservation of Kyoto they're doing. But they will never mention how much money they get. From them, And I, I don't mean to imply it's corrupt or anything or that they're exploiting the girls. But what I'm saying is that in, and we'll get to this later, but in the past, there was so much a sense of the Maiko as a victim of tea houses that just exploited her. So here now we have the sense of people going to a lot of trouble and expense to train people, to train these Maiko um, for their own benefit as artists and future adults and also for Kyoto. Now, the, the one last thing that's so interesting, I think, in this literature is that almost all of it concentrates on the maiko. So in the career path about Hanamachi, you will have 90% will be on the maiko, even though these girls do this for only five years, and a geiko or geisha can have this job into her 90s. Um, and yet we only learn about the geisha's debut, you know, what's called turning the collar from the red collar of a maiko to the white collar of a, a geisha, this kind of symbolism. And yet a lot does change at that point. She becomes more of an adult. Um, 
She's in charge of more of her own income. She um, should get her own clientele. She should pay for her own lessons, which is pretty expensive. It's a very expensive career because of being involved in an arts world, traditional arts world in Japan. But it's also when you could make money. And Geisha, these, Geisha and Kyoto are not married, but they can be mothers. And I think all of this makes them somewhat suspect still in Japanese society. I mean, everybody can root for the young girl who's trying her best, who's so innocent, working so hard. But when it gets to the adult woman that's not interested in marriage um, and more orthodox ways of being an adult woman in Japan, then then the literature now just um, seems to follow. Just She just gets mentioned, but she doesn't get prime time. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. That's so interesting. Isn't uh, it? Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about how you're looking at these different intersections here, you know, of how all that comes to play age and gender in this case. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I find it fascinating. I think that would be a great line to follow up. It's just since since I was using all the popular culture texts, etc. of the 2000s, I followed what was there, but I think that would be a great one to know more about. Yeah, there's something going on there. That's yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Someone else can do that project. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. So going on to uh, the next section here, right? And so you continue, like you were saying, like looking at these kind of like more mainstream uh, books and literature. And I thought it was mm-hmm. really cool how in chapter three you brought in some written by women who are participants in this, right? And they bring in like their perspectives in this. So what do we learn about, you know, the micro experience from their points of view? Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And since there'd been a couple other books in English on um, Geisha and Maiko by ethnographers like Liza Dalby's Geisha and Kelly Foreman, ethnomusicologist about the gay of Geisha, the art of Geisha. And they had done much more kind of ethnographic work. And mine is really cultural representations, what Japanese who never went to the Hanamachi would know. So I was fascinated in how Geisha and Maiko would present their own lives. And uh, there weren't a lot of books, but I did find these three memoirs um, written at different times. And one thing I should say off the bat is, whereas a lot of Geisha girl stories emphasize the seductive Geisha, you know, she's kind of the femme fatale, there is no mention of sex in any of these. And there's no, there might be a, and the idea of how to please any client, male or female, and maybe, and one might talk a little bit about being pretty or attractive, but not, nothing of the seductive femme fatale. It's not a, it's not a sort of a geisha's guide to sex in any way, but they do have um, certain things in common, these these three um, memoirs that I can tell you about. Oh, and I should say, they were all published in Japanese in 2007 by women who'd been Maiko in very different times. 
One had been a MICO in the 1960s, another in the 90s, and one in the early 2000s. But so all are very positive about Hanamachi life. They're all glad they took this, this path. They have absolutely nothing negative to say. And that you find in all the Hanamachi literature. Not that somebody might not have negative feelings, but they're not going to. Apparently, that's just not said. They never discuss clients, which supports the ex- exclusivity and uh, privacy of the Tihos culture. They never, ever describe themselves as seductive. They express gratitude to their communities and their teachers. They take pride in their work, especially their ability in dance. Um, And all three, though, have very different personalities. So that comes across. And I can tell you just a little bit about each one. So the first one, Kiriki Chizu, she's about 70 now. Um, She became a Maiko in the late 60s and was a geisha until the mid 80s. Um, hers is the longest book, and it's kind of an advice guide about all the social skills you can learn from geisha, um, and also the idea of how best to respond in situations calling for gift giving or just a various kind of little, somewhat vague uh, kind of politeness, but always ways that show you're thinking of another person. Uh, she was very proud of her achievements in dance. And all in all, hers is kind of an advice guide, like you can learn from Geisha about life schools. One thing she says in her book that's fascinating is, uh, I, everything I needed to know, I learned in Gion. I learned as a Maiko, meaning that even though she stopped her formal education at early in high school because she really wanted to go to the Gion and learn to be uh, a dancer, um, she's very proud of her arts education. However, I think in, in Japan, where there's so much attention to academic pedigree, not having a, a, a college degree, for example, or sometimes even a high school degree, is something that can kind of weigh on some of these geisha. They can feel a need to um, make make some excuse or, or kind of a explain it away, explain how they've achieved things. And I always find it a touch sad because they have achieved so much. They've been around the world. They've mastered dance. It's almost like they have gone to an arts high school and college. Um, so I, I really like to recognize that. Then then our second one, Yamaguchi Kimijo, wrote a very, very funny uh, year in the life of a Kyoto geisha. And um, she gives the backstage view. Like, uh, yes, she's so gorgeous when you see her on the street, but really at home, she can be pretty hot. And she's so glad there's an AC and a cold beer next to her. And she goes into all kinds of of kind of funny stories about sometimes what goes wrong or um, little foibles she has. And yet she, too, um, will feel pride in what she does. Like occasionally she, or in one scene, she runs into some students visiting Kyoto that come from her hometown on the island of Shikoku. And she thinks back to when she was a student and came to Kyoto, how she was so attracted by the idea of Maiko. And then she thinks, wow, and I became one. And now I'm a Geiko. And then actually I got to meet her and she was very funny, quite the conversationalist. And it turned out that she and her sister had collaborated on this book that her, her sister uh, had a good sense of humor too. Um, 
And then the third book is written by a young woman who was an active myco at the time. It's written as if uh, in, in a kind of perfect myco persona in that it's very girlish and very sweet and very innocent. And hers seems mainly aimed at getting other um, teenage girls to consider becoming myco. One interesting part of hers is when she talks, she talks a lot about the clothing and accessories of a myco. But she says, you know, on my day off, when I'm just walking around Maiko, around Kyoto, like any other teenager, I'll wear jeans, my hair's in a sloppy bun, and you would never recognize me. And that, and she says, and I even feel kind of boyish. And then on days when I'm walking in my Maiko garb around Kyoto, I feel great responsibility to represent Kyoto, represent my Hanamachi and Okia and to be the Maiko that tourists expect to see. So one thing this kind of gets to masquerade is how much people in the profession feel kind of on stage and have a, a persona for that, and then how differently they can feel off stage. So this, this play between off stage and on stage is one of sort of the fundamental um, Maiko masquerades. Um, and then there's one more, but I talk about, we can talk about this in the next chapter, and that's um, Iwasaki Mineko's uh, memoir written a little early, earlier, around 2001, I believe, called Geisha Alive, which is available in English. And that has a much more negative view of the Hanamachi, although it does have some positive things too. Cool. Yeah, thank you for presenting us like you said there's so many like wonderful personalities you know that just come through in that section um and you're already kind of like getting into chapter four a bit you know so can you you know for us in this chapter you you know talk about that book you just mentioned at the end but also we get into some films and whatnot so can you talk about some of these other you know representations here of the myco yeah, so in the chapter um, four on um, Michael and movies and manga comics, I go over um, about five different narratives from the 1950s to the 2000s. All of them were very popular in Japan, so they were very well known at the time. I didn't, interestingly, I didn't find many for the 60s or the 70s, you know, but quite a few for the 50s and the 2000s. But it, you know, to make long story short, in the 1950s, in very famous films like Mizoguchi's A Geisha, the Geisha, the Maiko, is, is portrayed as impoverished, abandoned by her family. She's definitely a victim of lecherous men and wily teahouse women. And yet, if you fast forward to the 2000s, in the middle of this boom of domestic tourism and all this interest in, in Kyoto, you have a very different Maiko story. And suddenly she's the artist, she's innocent, and the Hanamachi seems like a convent almost. You know, everybody is very kind to her. If and, and all these women managers, they're not greedy, they're kind and strict, but they have the girl's interest at heart. Um, and what's interesting here too is while in the 50s they show, especially in the Mizoguchi movie, movie um, kind of raucous, uh, tea house parties with these out of control men. When you get to the 2000s in TV shows, films, manga, men practically disappear. I mean, you, there's very few tea house parties. And when there are, the men are always perfect gentlemen and they're so kind to the girls. 
And, uh, and there's also no boyfriends, you know, so, so it really get, they really emphasize the idea of a girl's world here and a very inviting one to women readers who might be interested in seeing the micro as a kind of catalyst to thinking of the sentimentality of girlhood or a sort of fun view of girlhood. And I, I'm not trying to say that, that the fifties were true and the two thousands are, um, fake or something like that, but rather these are the kind of representations that you see much of in, in these different periods and they're dramatically different. But if, if the listeners wanted to get an idea of what a 2000s uh, narrative is now, you can see online by just searching Kyo in Kyoto. Kyo is K-I-Y-O. Kyo in Kyoto from the Maiko House. And this is a short animation uh, in episodes. And it's based on a very popular girls comic uh, published in Japanese since 2017. I think it sold over a million copies, the, uh, the comics. Um, but to, to tell you briefly what this um, anime and manga do is they imagine two young girls from northeastern Japan, Tohoku, which is kind of a poorer part of Japan, actually. And they come to Kyoto, both wanting to be Maiko. One succeeds and becomes the most fabulous Maiko ever, whereas her friend is not very good at it, but becomes the super cook for the Okia. And the Okia is kind of a fantasy it has around 13 or 14 girls, which wouldn't happen. But the real conflict is not between people. It's between these girls and their ordinary selves and their ordinary teenage habits and particularly their appetites. And then going on stage again to being the perfectly poised Maiko. So a lot of the manga actually (laughs) revolves around teenage comfort food, real common foods, too. I love that. That's so fun. <laughs> yeah, isn't that? Yeah. And I love that you, again, like, I was so impressed, like I said at the beginning, of how much you covered, like, how many different types of media you covered in this book. Like, it's so interesting to me. That you, oh, like- thank you. Yeah, I, I felt at times a bit, um, you know, like amateur, because I, I work at literature the most and reading things like, magazines too and history and and here I was doing um fiction and movies and tv and then later art and I thought well if I just unify it around what what are how are they representing Maiko then maybe that'll work <laughs> it's it works it you you, you pulled it off okay. <laughs> yeah I do here. yeah and speaking of the next type of media <laughs> um, yeah in chapter five, now we're looking at, you know, something a little different right here from what we were just right. talking about here, a novel series, right? And I thought it was super interesting about how, you know, you get into like the boy Michael here and these different interests, like these different takes on gender here. So can you talk about all that? Yeah, that was so fun. I mean, it was actually the first chapter I wrote. Um, it's a very funny fiction series called Boy Michael, There Goes Chiyogiku. And this is one where I did have the chance to talk with the author a lot and get kind of the backstory about how she created it, how she worked with publishers and uh, and her feeling about it. And the series actually went on for 12 years and had 54 of these little volumes. I should also mention that it's a relatively new genre in Japan that goes back to the 2000s. It's called light fiction. And these light fiction books are very small. They're usually shelved in a different part of bookstores aimed at young teens. 
They fit really easily in your pockets, so great for reading on a train in Japan. And the Japanese is actually very easy. So if you have like third year Japanese, I think you could could read Geogiku. And this light fiction series often creates fantasy worlds, and it often plays with gender. There's many apparently, because uh, I only concentrate on this, but apparently there's many kinds, uh, many light fiction series where a boy is somehow transformed into a girl or plays as a girl in a, like a girl's academy or something. So Chiyogiku fits very well in that. So the, the basic premise of this Chiyogiku series is there's this little boy named Mikia. He's, I guess, 14, but he seems very young. And his mother owns an okia, which is also a tea house. And one night, the Maiko who's supposed to um, go to the evening parties, disappears. And this will be a great shame for the uh, for the tea house. And so to save the day, Mikia, who has kind of long hair, says, hey, mom, I've, you know, I've grown up here. I can, I can be a Maiko for a night. And, she, and then she has this funny response. Well, there's no rule saying it has to be a girl. So her... She and uh, his cousin and Mikia's uh, cousin's friend, who's a hairdresser, all dress her up as Chiyogiku. And then she goes to these parties and she turns out to be a big success immediately. And so this goes on for a year and a half. And each series, each book in the series, they're about 150 pages, but very short, actually, because they're small, um, presents Mikia with some problem where his Maiko persona, Chiyogiku, is almost exposed. So you always know he'll have to figure out some way to keep the deception going or else the series will end. But it gets difficult because Chiyogiku becomes such a famous Maiko that her picture is everywhere and uh, she has many fans. So what's fascinating is you see in this creation of the boy persona and the girl persona how much... Um, for example, the boy has to remember to talk in his boy voice and text in his boy style. And when he meets some of the same people Chiyogiku knows, he has to remember that he only knows certain things because they met Chiyogiku. So he can't divulge those at that point. Then when he's Chiyogiku, it's the same thing, except he's experiencing life as a girl, and he can do this very perfect Michael performance. And one of the things that's so interesting about his masquerade is he always knows it's a role. Like, unlike real Michael, who feel like, well, shouldn't I be able to embody this perfect Michael? He's saying, this is a role. I can do this by, if I speak the language the right way and do my hair like this and, and meet other people's expectations of what a Michael will be, then I'm a Maiko. And sure enough, he's the most famous Maiko of all of that, you know, and it's just so fascinating. And at one point, the one person in the Chiyogiku series who can see right through Chiyogiku to Mikia is a Kabuki Onagata. And the Onagata is a female role player in the Kabuki theater. So he's in a sense doing the same thing. In other words, he even tells Mikia, you're creating the feminine persona that real women cannot. And that's how, you know, you're, you're able to do it as artistry, which goes back to why Onagata in the early 20th century got into being seen as more woman-like than women 
which is another story. But anyway, that that's fascinating. That kind of link to um, older Japanese culture. So so you, and what's so fascinating for the reader is you too can see the world from two different views. You know, from this girl world and this boy world. And um, but you know, Mikia never says that he wants to become transgender. He there's always the sense this will end and he will become a man. Uh, so he so he has to enjoy Chiyogiku until his voice changes and the, you know he can't do it anymore. However, the very last end of the story that because it ends in five different endings, but the very last one shows Mikia coming back. As a 20-year-old, he's coming back from having studied abroad, and he meets this longtime client that was always a fan of Chiyogiku, and they both come out as gay, and they kind of imagine getting married, and then the author says, I hope Japan will catch up with other advanced nations and make same-sex marriage legal. How, and then when I talked with the author about this, she said, oh, I got so many fan letters from LGBTQ people that thought this was really great, but she said, I only care about fiction. She said she wasn't trying to make political statements, but just kind of follow where the fiction led. Anyway, I, I thought that was an interesting um, backstory of all of this. But um, but it's really a, a kind of a fun, easy way to learn about the Hanamachi. Oh, and, and one thing also interesting about this Chiyogiku series is even though like other like fiction that's aimed at teens, she has um, readers of all ages, both men and women. There's a Kyoto University math professor who reads it. And at the end of each little volume, she has a note to the um, note to her readers, which is a convention of light fiction. And she tells all about her life. And anyway, then you could see her interaction with fans because she'll report about people will send her gifts or people will say, oh, I really liked this in the last um, in the last uh, novel. And so I'm going to send you the chocolate that Mikia liked, for example. And sometimes they correct her too, like, excuse me, you know, in the last um, uh, series, in the last novel, Mikia was five feet and now he's 4'11", so I think you're making a mistake here. <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. But it's really interesting to see through these also a kind of fandom that extends uh, way past Kyoto or or Hanamachi. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The behind the scenes stuff is so fascinating. Yeah. Like, wow. Like that's that you could probably do like some kind of fandom studies thing on all of this. Like for sure too. Like you're saying. Like I bet you could. You know, and how much um, the publisher I think encourages writers to do this because it and it seems to be quite a draw. I mean sometimes. I I just could really enjoy lots of these um, afterwards because they're very short and they're very personable. And uh, the author, Nanami Haruka, is so uh, open and kind of funny about her life. And Yeah, that's really cool. And then finally, looking at your last chapter here, six, you know, you get into, in this case, some humorous visual text. So can you talk about, you know, at the beginning, you described the imagery of the Maiko so well, but can you kind of t talk to us for a minute here in chapter six, a bit more about, you know, the imagery of the Maiko and these specific case studies here? 
Right. Thanks. This was very fun to um, to look at and think about and write about. Um, and here we have different visual images of the Maiko that are frankly funny, most of them, and they're very irreverent. So even though Kyoto is Japan's old capital and the seat of ancient culture, they don't really care. They're just laughing. So you'll have a Buddha dressed up as a Maiko in, in a manga, for example. And many of the images I take from Kyoto International Manga Museum, which uh, has a permanent exhibit called 100 Maiko Illustrations. And this was a collaboration with the Japan Cartoonists Association. And the Japan Cartoonists Association invited its members each to send uh, one manga, one frame manga. It didn't have to have a title or anything like that. They could use their imagination freely. It just had to, the topic had to be Maiko. And so many of, and they're hanging up all over the museum. There's actually 174. And many are very pretty and cute. They make Maiko look like dolls. There's always also some homely Maiko. There's quite a few animal Maiko. There's poodles and parrots and kittens and mice are, are made into sweet little Maiko. But, um, and there's even a vegetable, a big daikon radish becomes a Maiko. And maybe one of the funniest is Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson is morphed into a Maiko and he becomes Michael Jackson. <laughs> That's very cute. But just to give you an idea, I mean, one of the ones, the things I often write about in the book are ones that had a bit of a social comment. Like the, the artist was clearly using some other reference in Japanese or world popular culture and blending it with the Maiko to make a point. So one I could mention is high school graduate Maiko. This is by Sato Masao, and I think I can describe it so your viewers can get the idea. And this is quite a teenage fashionista, and you see this girl walking, and she's really restyled this conservative Maiko costume to fit her own teenage taste. So she's rolled up her kimono and shows her bare legs. Then she has pink footwear, which kind of meshes those wooden Maiko sandals with platform shoes. And she wears colorful makeup and she sort of invented her own big hair ornaments. Um, so it's funny on its own. But then if you know this phenomenon called uh, Kogaru or Kogals of the late 1990s, then it becomes funnier. So in the late 1990s in Japan, there was a phenomenon of, of high school girls designing these uh, kind of uniforms that just angered school officials. And they too, they'd roll up their skirts, they'd bleach their hair, and they'd tan their skin and their look and their own kind of invented slang. And then their association with um, dating for pay um, made people you know, very um, angry and worried what's happening to Japan. It was even seen as kind of a, a masquerade of Japanese or delinquency and non-Japanese-ness. So here, what Sato's doing is taking these girls who are so rebellious, inventing their own kind of teenage culture, and he's meshing them with the most conservative, um, traditional girl image that there is. You know, for the because for the Maiko, she's dressed to code by her elders. For her, Japanese tradition is fashion. And for the Kogal, it was, I'm going to do my own thing. So, so the more you know about the background, the more, the funnier it is, the more of a bite it has. And I noticed when I was um, going through the museum with a young Japanese friend, she got lots of the references that, I, that, you know, just went past me. And, uh, so I thought, gee, and this this um, 
This was done around 2006. So in 20 years, will people need notes to understand these comics? But anyway, it just shows how the idea of masquerade can be lifted from this very conservative, proper idea of the Michael to play with the ideas of human and animal and Japanese and non-Japanese and even Kyoto as a tourist site. Or, for example, in this, even a Buddha statue is redone as a Maiko. So this, what would have been seen maybe or could still be seen as a, a venerated, you know, Buddha statue also becomes very, frankly, a tourist symbol in a girl's town that's made for girls to have fun. So anyway, I, I like going through that manga museum. Yeah, I want and to go. <laughs> if you'd like me to to wrap up, I could kind of over uh, give gives kind of the the nutshell of what the book's argument is. Um, so so what I see with the main argument of Michael Mc Masquerade is this: that in the two thousands, the Michael represented a kind of idealized Japanese girlhood, a kind of remnant of the past in the present. And this idealization itself, along with the Maiko's elaborate costume, gave rise to play with the notion of masquerade, both for her and for the Hanamachi and in these very playful fictions. But when we look deeply into the variety of masquerades here and the meanings attached to them, we discover not only lots of play and fun, but also assumptions about the meanings of girlhood in Japan today how girlhood is connected to gender, ethnicity, national identity, and age. And so the various texts I introduce even lead us to question, I hope, whether these categories themselves are a kind of masquerade, a kind of fictions about Japan in the 2000s. So that's what I hope comes across in the end. And to learn more about what comes across, go read it. So check it out. Um, but thank you, Dr. Bardsley, for giving us at least the sneak preview of your great book um, and joining us on New Books Network. So as we wrap up, this is my usual closing question. What other projects are you working on right now? Well, right now I'm using all of the stories from this research to do a blog. And if you search Jan Bardsley blog, then uh, you can find this. And I'm trying to do lots of short stories about different aspects of the Michael costume and lore and books about her. Cool. That's awesome that you're, you know, translating this onto another type of, you know, platform. I love that idea. Yeah. It's a, it's a real new one for me, learning how to write it, imagining an audience I don't know and trying to uh, just trying to, to you to develop a blog style, but it's certainly fun. And what I like about it is I can use lots and lots of images. But thanks, Emily. I really appreciated talking with you today. Yeah. And I really enjoyed, you know, talking with you about the book further too, especially like, you know, hearing some of the behind the scenes stuff that I didn't know about, you know, from reading the book. So I learned a lot too. Um, And listeners, just to kind of give you a recap, uh, you just heard an interview with Dr. Jan Bardsley, author of Michael Masquerade, Crafting Geisha Girlhood in Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network. 